5, beginning at verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. The one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in on you? How can you say who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brothers of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping, and they laughed at him. Then he put them outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talithe kum which means, little girl, get up. And immediately the girl got up and began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Let's pray. O oh Lord, bless the hearing of this word, so that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts can be found acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock, our strength, our redeemer. Amen. 
Mark Murphy wrote an article in Forbes magazine entitled, Interruptions Are Killing Your Productivity. If you're like most people at work, you are often interrupted. He interviewed over 6,000 people over an online quiz over two months' time entitled, How Do Your Time Management Skills Stack Up? The results he found were pretty amazing. Many people, that is 71% of us, report interruptions while we work that interfere significantly with our day. Only 29% of us can block interruptions out. Kim Fathauer is made of magic. I don't know how in the chaos of our office she gets anything done, but she's magic. Which means there are 42% of us left losing our minds. He dug deeper into the data and discovered that 44% of us report that our day is unsuccessful as a result of those interruptions. By contrast, when people can block out interruptions, that percentage of success goes up to 60 7%. The difference is huge. So what do we do? Sometimes we go in an hour early. Or we take off and go to the coffee shop for an hour. Because in that hour of quiet, can we not get often more done in that amount of time than in our eight-plus-hour day? One of the primary drivers of our success during that one-hour break at the coffee shop or before anyone else comes into the office is that it was devoid of interruptions. Now, what would the story of Jesus look like if he had avoided interruptions? We see interruptions as inconvenient to our day when Jesus saw interruptions as his job. Crisis upon crisis is what Jesus encountered. He had healed so many that people pressed in on him in crowds. He's reported in scripture as to have crossed the sea, to gotten in the boat, trying to escape it just for a time, and then the crowds would meet him there. He couldn't get away from the need, let alone find any peace. Here in chapter 5, the crowd is so pressing that it's a wonder that Jairus gets through the crowd. Maybe it's his authority as a man of the synagogue that parts the way for him to have access to Jesus. But he gets there and he begs him desperately, face in the ground, please come, my daughter is dying. Jesus is prepared to go. 
Whatever was on his agenda, he gets up and he goes with Jairus and it's on his way to take care of this child that another interruption happens. A woman with a 12-year hemorrhage, we are told, stops him by the mere touch of his clothes and power leaving his body. So three main characters. Jairus, on behalf of his child, his child so sick she's gravely ill, and a woman with a hemorrhage so poor, the scripture says, that she had handed all of her money over to doctors, and she must have had no family at all, else someone would have been there in her support. In other words, she is the exact opposite of Jairus is in our story. And the story only gets bigger then when the crowd comes back and says, no need to bother the master. The child is now dead. This interruption has had terrible consequences. Might I add that this interruption stuff involves what could easily be understood as dirty business. Mark doesn't explicitly say it in this text, but both of these women would have been considered ritually impure. By having bled for 12 years, she is not only unclean, but anyone she touches in the crowd, and Jesus, when she touches him, is made unclean. She's not supposed to be in public. And then when Jesus dares touch the dead child, it renders him unclean again. And ritual must be performed. You see, getting the need met in this day and time was dirty business. And Jesus was willing even then to face it. Jesus sees this interruption as exactly, exactly where he's needed. The question is, are we willing to be interrupted by the difficult, inconvenient, dirty business of living and loving in this world? It's a whole lot easier to find the coffee shop or that quiet hour where we need to accomplish our own lives rather than to engage in the inconvenient realities of the world. This past week, Dr. Gupta, who reports for CNN, wrote an article about food waste. He had been to Somalia in 2011 and had witnessed mass starvation and death, reporting that he, he, he couldn't think of it or speak of it, that he doesn't well up with tears and it breaks his heart all over again. It's in that memory that he reports that our nation, just ours, wastes up to 40% of the food produced in this country. How much of it is sitting in our refrigerators because we didn't want to eat the leftovers? I confess. It's wasted in the fields, it's wasted on the docks, 
It's wasted in our homes. In fact, restaurants report that they waste up to 60% of the food that they make. Interruptions need to happen. It is senseless to watch one and six children go hungry to bed at night and one in eight adults. Last night there was a, a family on the news reported that they were trying to live without plastic. After 50 or 60 years of plastic in our lives, could we figure that out? The article also reported that 90% of the plastic that comes into our home is recyclable and only 9% gets reused. The pictures of the floating waste in our oceans is devastating. Eight million metric tons entering our ocean every year. We don't like the interruptions that inconvenience brings into our lives. But just so we know, there's plenty of hemorrhaging and dying and hunger and thirsty people and sick ones that we'd rather not touch, rather not be interrupted by, rather not see. But human need for Jesus Human need always trumps inconvenience. It always trumps appropriateness. It doesn't matter what the purity laws are. And it always trumps social norms. People are always more important than his convenience. So how does Jesus address it? He does it by his willingness to touch us, wherever, whenever, and with whatever that we need. He's there in the midst of crisis and calm, celebration and grief. The interruption simply identifies the opportunity. So out of this crowd, Jesus on his way to heal Jairus' daughter, the interruption of the woman, Mark tells us, is marked by all kinds of descriptors. We are supposed to hear just how much pain and struggle she's been through. He wants to elicit empathy in us. Mark's rich description invites us to feel her desperateness. He needs us to feel for her because her offense in this setting is huge. She reaches out to fasten on, to grab, to take her blessing by touching a garment. And instantly she knows that regardless of how she did it, she's been blessed. And however it happened, Jesus knows that power has left his body. And he turns around and said, who? Who touched me? 
course, it sounds like a joke to the rest of the crowd. Who could figure out who was touching whom in that mass of people? And yet Jesus waits for her to reveal herself because he's got to touch her personally. With his eyes and with his voice, he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. He's got to see her and connect with her and make her family just as much as Jairus' daughter was his. He's not going to leave her alone, even in her healing. Did a little research this week on the power of touch. And many report that the instance of children being held more closely and carefully in their younger years actually reduces the amount of later lifetime violence. Touch creates trust between individuals, helps us bond, and is the foundation of compassion. It contributes to economic gain. You know, when all those NBA teams are high-fiving and slapping each other in inappropriate places, they are bonding. And that team spirit, they actually study this. When they, when they are more physically touching of each other, it actually produces a better winning team. Who'd have thunk it? It's supposed to decrease disease and strengthen our immune systems. In fact, it reports that doctors who give you real eye contact and either touch you, pat you, or acknowledge your presence, that it helps boost the survival rate of patients with complex, life-threatening illness. Touch makes us feel like family, even potentially when we've just met. The interruption of this woman touching Jesus, allowing him to touch her back, will have to change her life. It will heal her and restore her to community. Change will only happen when the gospel is lived this way. When we are willing, literally or figuratively, to touch people's lives in meaningful and healing ways, wherever they are. Oh, but remember, this little interruption has caused the death of Jairus' daughter. Folks come back bearing the news. Don't bother. She's already gone. We've seen it with our own eyes. That's when Jesus looks Jairus square in the face and says, Don't fear, only faith. Believe is translated in English because faith as a verb is difficult to find a comparable word. 
What Jesus really says is faith is an interrupting verb. Don't fear, only faith. When the friends say there's no need, Jesus counseled to Jairus to have this same kind of faith that the hemorrhaging woman has had. Fear not, only faith. Because he attributes the bleeding woman's healing not to his power, but to her willingness to believe that anything could happen given God's grace and God's presence. Jesus wants Jairus to have the same experience of believing on his feet and leaving the rest up to God. David Lewis, a Lutheran pastor, says that reclaiming faith as a verb is so important. Faith understood and more, as more of a verb than as a noun takes it out of our heads. It stresses our living in the ways that we treat others, how we raise our children, how we spend our money, how we care for those in need, and more and more and more. Faith as a verb is about our daily activity and our practices, stressing how we act rather than how we think. This kind of faith invites us out of our theological armchairs into the game of life, loving our neighbor and trying to do the best that we can given any situation than hurrying back to church for confession and encouragement and sending out to do it again. Just know that whatever the problem, sleeping or dead, Jesus is going to be present in that child's pain, in that family's pain, just as he was with the woman who hemorrhaged. They arrive, the house is filled in tears, and the NRSV says, Jesus put them out. Well, what it really means is he threw them out. And he says to the little girl after he takes her by the hand, get up. What he offers her is resurrection. It's the same word Mark uses not only for her rising, but for the day of Jesus' resurrection. And the same joy that they have in that household is the same word for joy they use on Easter morning. Jesus has been present because he was willing to stay in there with the interruption and the challenge, regardless of how difficult or dirty, impossible or hard. By the end of the story, things are back to normal at Jairus' house in the suburbs. The chaos has calmed. All's well that ends well, at least for now. Hopefully, he will remember that when the world interrupts, he need not fear, only faith. So how are you and I going to do it? How are we going to remember once we get out the door that our interruptions are our gifts? 
I loved uh, G.K. Chesterton for years. He had quite a sense of humor as well as being uh, a, 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 a prolific writer. He said of one example, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play and the opera, grace before the concert and the pantomime, grace before I open a book, Grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. What he implies is that it's good for us to give thanks before every meal, but don't stop there. When the phone rings and interrupts your thought, when the inconvenient neighbor knocks, when the call of volunteers simply, when you don't have time to address it, stop and say grace. What if we said grace before we addressed what feels like the inconvenient realities of the world? I dare think that we'd touch each other with more compassion, we'd build better relationships, we would restore community and even the world. Because faith as a verb would be real, and God would be so very real in the resurrection moments we witness. Now that's what you'd call a productive day. All of this happens, my friends, through interruption on the way to someone else's healing.